Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. Now, last week, we continued our look at the variety of online family trees that you can use to not only organize and visualize your own research, but to also connect with others who may be researching the same family lines. It can be a big boost to your research to connect with someone who may have additional information and even photographs of your ancestors. But we shouldn't just post our own family trees online and then sit back hoping that someone contacts us. We need to also be going out there on the internet and looking for trees that others have posted and initiating contact with them. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about how to go about contacting other researchers as well as relatives that we find. I call this genealogical cold calling, and I'm going to call on a relative of mine who is an expert in contacting and interviewing folks for the first time. My cousin, Carolyn Ender, has conducted hundreds of telephone interviews and has a knack for quickly connecting with folks that she doesn't know over the telephone in ways that put them at ease and brings to light the information that she's looking for. This very possibly could be the one phone call that I need to have that next breakthrough, so I just really try to keep a real positive attitude about it. Recently, my husband and I called an elderly person on his side of the family. We had talked with this person a few years ago, and she did not seem very interested in talking about the family and and sharing her memories. Um, But we were passing through the city where she lives just a few months ago and decided to just give her a call and see if perhaps we could go by and visit her. Well, we called her, and she was not eager for us to come to her home, but she ended up being very eager to talk over the phone. So it was interesting just how, once we got her started, she talked for a long time. But before we talk to Carolyn, let's do some follow-up with an email from a listener about family trees. Then I'm going to share a little story that puts into practice what we've learned so far in this podcast series. the best things about doing this podcast is hearing from you. And chances are, if you're listening to the show and a question pops into your mind, other listeners out there probably have similar questions. And answering those here on the show can help us all out. Well, this week's email comes from John in Maryland, a proud descendant of Italian ancestors, who wrote in with an important question on the topic of online family trees, which we covered in episodes 12 and 13 of the podcast. John writes, one question I have about online family trees from episode 12 is concerning security. I'm concerned that by posting mother's maiden names of living people may provide information for identity theft. Many banks require your mother's maiden name for a security question. 
I say that most information of living people can be restricted to not be shown on some places that you can post your family tree. However, the names are typically still listed. I use the MyHeritage website to post my family tree. I can see the names of the living relatives. I see that you can restrict access to the online family tree to only be available to a site member. Unfortunately, this setting would not allow us to potentially find distant relatives who may be looking for common family trees online. Well, John, this is a really good question. For many, many years, as you know, banks and other institutions have been using mother's maiden name as a security question, assuming that only you would know what your mother's maiden name is. But, of course, that has changed dramatically. Anyone with a little tenacity could probably rather quickly put their hands on that information by just going online. Well, I was pretty surprised to hear from you that it looked as if my heritage was showing the names of the living individuals in your family tree. So I contacted Gilad Jaffet, the founder of my heritage, to get the inside scoop. And here's what Gilad had to say. When a user posts such information, he or she can see the details of the living people, but other people cannot. Strangers only see information on deceased people. We call this automatic data privatization. That is why MyHeritage is home to more than 305 million names posted by our 28.8 million users. After Ancestry.com, MyHeritage is now the world's second largest genealogy community site and is one of the fastest growing thanks to its availability in 34 languages. He goes on to say that MyHeritage also has unique technology called smart matching, and that compares the trees of its users to find overlaps. When trees overlap, the tree's owners are notified and each can see the corresponding portion from the other tree, but not additional information about living relatives. This useful tool helps genealogists find other people who are related to them so that they can exchange information and the rest is up to them. It's also a great method to learn more from other people. For example, get missing dates that other people know of people in your tree and generally grow the tree further. The beauty of smart matches is that users can have a fine control over it. They can make their sites completely private so that guests would not be able to see details of deceased people and separately decide if they want smart matching to be enabled or not. So it sounds like MyHeritage is another good option for posting your family tree data online and matching it up with other researchers while retaining your privacy. So many thanks to Gilad Jaffet of MyHeritage.com and to John in Maryland for posing a great question. Okay, now, as you may know, if you've signed up for the free Genealogy Gems email newsletter, I recently spent 12 nights this month on a Caribbean cruise where I had the opportunity to teach a series of genealogy classes. And let me just say, a cruise ship is a pretty fun place to be doing genealogy. It was terrific. Well, lots of the folks who attended the classes were just getting started in their research, and a gentleman also named John was one of those students. And he had wondered for many years what had become of an ancestor of his who was born in New York and who he was pretty sure had died in California. He had checked the 1930 census for him in California, but he wasn't there. And being new to genealogy, he was a little timid and unsure about where to dive in. So I offered to do a quick search for him when I got home and see if I could get the ball rolling. 
Well, I thought it would be interesting to see just how much I could find in one hour or less online using the strategies that we've covered here on the podcast so far. Well, in that one hour time frame, I was not only able to find his death information, but I also found him in the 1930 and 1920 census and located his ancestors, father and grandfather. Now, This isn't because I'm some sort of genealogy genius. I mean, far from it. (laughs) I simply put into practice all the things that we have covered so far in this podcast and followed good basic genealogical search principles. And you can do that too. And I want for you to get a chance to see how you can put into practice what we've learned here. In fact, after emailing all the information to him, I thought that this would be a great case study to go over together here on the show because this quick search utilized so many of the research techniques that we've talked about on episodes 1 through 13, and I want you to get to see how you can put what you've learned into action. Now, John had very little to work with, just the name of his ancestor and an approximate birth year, which was 1902. Fortunately, the name was pretty unique, which helped narrow things down when the search results came up. Now, even though I had a birth year, I went for his death record first. Remember the mantra of genealogists, work backwards. So I didn't start with that birth date, but rather I pulled the techniques from episodes three and four and went online and first searched the Social Security Death Index, the SSDI, and the California Death Index. The SSDI gave me his exact birth date in New York and his exact death date in California. I then confirmed that death date by locating him in the California Death Index, which also gave me his mother's maiden name. So from these two online databases, I had already gathered a lot of valuable information to go forward with. Next, I used the census, which we talked about in depth in episode 9, 10, and 11. And I searched for him in the most recent census available, which of course is the 1930 census. I found him not in California, where I had expected to find him, but in Queens County, New York. He was living with his wife, so now I knew her name. And I began to wonder if this move to California maybe had occurred later in life after 1930. But that would take more digging to answer. Then I continued working backwards and searched the 1920 census. And surprise, surprise, I found him listed under the San Pedro military base in California. At that time of the census, he was actually at sea. He was out on the USS New Mexico, but it was out of the San Pedro military base. So the story was sort of starting to emerge He likely had his first connection with California during World War I and his time in the military. And then he probably returned home to New York, got married, but he finally settled and eventually died in California. So again, continuing to work backwards, I did a search on Ancestry.com on his name, birth date, and the location of New York and found his birth record from the borough of Manhattan in the New York City Births 1891 to 1902 database, which included the birth certificate number, which would make it really easy to just order a copy of the original birth certificate. 
And actually, by searching on his name in Google, I found that same database was also available for free on another researcher's website. Finally, I took a look for online family trees, which, of course, we've covered in depth in episodes 12 and 13. I searched both Ancestry.com and then on Google.com, and quickly I found somebody who had posted a tree online that not only included his ancestor, but also that ancestor's parents and grandparents. In less than one hour, using the principles that we've covered so far, I was able to take his ancestor's name and the birth year of 1902 and collect three generations of the family all the way back to 1837, in Smyrna, Greece. So to recap, we need to work backwards, locate the death record, search that census starting with the most recent enumeration, locate the birth record, and finally search for other online family trees that include the same family line. Believe me, this isn't just textbook stuff that we're covering here on the podcast. We're talking about tried and true principles that work and can bring exciting results in one hour or less. Now, coming up next, we're going to add another layer to the use of online family trees by talking about how to go about contacting other researchers and distant cousins that you find, but that you don't know personally. Sort of a one-on-one course in genealogical cold calling. This is Lisa Louise Cook. And you are listening to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. We are back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In episodes 12 and 13, we talked at length about online family trees. I hope you've taken a serious look at some of the great tools that we've talked about and perhaps even done some searches to see if anyone out there is also researching one of your family lines. But the question we haven't answered yet is, what in the world are you supposed to do once you've identified someone who is, I mean, let's face it, a complete stranger to you? Calling up people we don't know and asking them a bunch of questions isn't something we do every day. Kind of sounds more like being a telephone solicitor than a family historian. And let me tell you, I can always tell when it's a solicitor on the telephone because the first thing out of their mouth is, is this Mrs. Cookie? But I digress. As intimidating and let's be honest, downright scary as it might be to pick up the phone and call a stranger to ask them about your family history It may be the difference between whether or not you find that next elusive ancestor or learn about some heroic feat of of a relative that you never knew about. You know, it's a funny thing, but I don't recall ever reading a genealogy magazine article or blog that addressed the subject of calling strangers. I mean, we talk about interviewing family members, but calling an outright stranger who is a possible research lead is not for the faint of heart. I mean, this can be tough stuff. While most folks are really nice about it, not everyone is going to be thrilled that you called. And I know I've run into that. And yet when you muster up the courage and pick up that phone and dial it, it can be an incredible source for research breakthroughs. So today we're going to further our research with a perfect stranger over the telephone. 
And the best person I can think of to talk to about this subject is someone who called me out of the blue one day several years ago and told me that she was my cousin and that she wanted to know what I knew about our family. Carolyn Ender lives across the country from me, and to this day, we've actually never met in person. But because she picked up the phone that day and, and made that call, we've enjoyed some great shared research success, as well as a wonderful friendship. Carolyn has taken cold calling to a high level and has made hundreds of cold calls in pursuit of her family tree. I've learned a lot from her over the years, and I want you to benefit from her experience as well. So here is part one of my conversation with her. Well, today I am talking with one of my genealogy partners, and that is my cousin, Carolyn Ender. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, folks, one of the really interesting things is I feel like I know Carolyn so well. We have... um emailed, we've shared pictures, we've shared those aha moments, but the funny thing is we've never met. And um, so this is kind of a really, uh, Carolyn lives out in Texas and I live in, in California. And so, um, but she was the first person I thought of when I realized I wanted to do a segment on this topic of getting up the courage to interview people that we don't know. And one of the things that Carolyn is awfully good at is making those calls to people that she hasn't met before, maybe somebody that somebody has referred her to. And I have been the beneficiary of so many of the wonderful documents that she has uh, typed up and transcribed her notes from those various interviews about our family. So today, Carolyn, I'm hoping that we can just um, impart some of that knowledge and maybe some of that courage that you've had in making some of these phone calls and, and hopefully encourage the listeners out there to, to know that they can do the same and the wealth of information that can come from making those kinds of calls. Have you found them to be a good resource in your family history research? Yes, Lisa, I really have. It's been one of the best things that I've done, one of the best resources, and it hasn't always been easy. In fact, almost every call... Um, I, I begin feeling like this, you know, this is really hard, but I really try to uh, get away from thinking that and um, just know that it is a, a wonderful resource. Exactly. We'll back up a little bit and share with the folks who are listening about how long you've been researching your family. Well, I really started about 32 years ago, and I can come up with an exact number like that because I know that my daughter was just a baby when I started. And um, my husband and I both started working on both of our families. It was something that we were both very much interested in. Um, I would work on it off and on through the years, um, putting it aside, just not enough time, raising a family and other demands. But about six years ago, I believe it was early in 2001, actually about the time that you and I really connected, uh, that's when I just said, this is it. I really want to do this, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do it. So I've been really working hard at it since that time. Now, Carolyn... Tell us, would you consider yourself to be uh, an A personality, very um, upfront kind of gal, or do you find yourself a little more on the shy side? How would you characterize your personality? I would definitely say I'm more on the shy side, definitely. And, and that's kind of 
a little bit what I've picked up on in, in some of our conversations, and yet uh, you've had this wonderful ability to um, overcome it and, well, as I said, to make some calls that have really landed you some some terrific family information. Let's let's start by just kind of walking through the process, um, because I know I was asking around at my local genealogical society meeting, and there are a lot of folks who've never made a phone call to somebody, let's say, across the country who they've never met, who they know will not know them from Adam. So let's try and walk through the process that you use, and uh, hopefully this is something that they could follow. Okay, that will be great. Well, now, the first thing I'm assuming that you do is as you're working through your research, somehow, in some way, a person has come to your attention or been identified as a person who may very well hold some key information. So how do you go about figuring out how to find this person or how to contact them? Well, um, usually I will be working on a particular family group or a, a particular person in the the group that I'm working on, and I've just kind of come to a standstill. And so, you know, you're at that place where you're just saying, where can I go for more information? How can I get the next little breakthrough that I need? And, of course, there are the records that can be researched, but a lot of times it's just a person, a, a living person that will have that information. And so I just try to begin looking at the people in this family group and saying, who is it that I could talk to? And then once you've uh, kind of honed in on a particular person, do you have any favorite uh, websites or methods that you use to try and get their phone number? Well, um, there are a couple that have been real helpful to me. Uh, one is a website called Anywho, that's A-N-Y-W-H-O dot com. Another one is people.yahoo.com. Those two have been helpful for me. And then, of course, Google is um, a very good place to start. Sometimes I'll do that before going to one of the other websites. And then also, I will definitely consider who are other relatives that I'm already in contact with that may know this person that I want to reach, may even already have their phone number. Uh, sometimes I may not know the city that the person lives in, and sometimes another relative will be a very good place to start. That's a great idea, and I will um, have all of those websites listed in the show notes for today's episode. I know one of my favorite websites is the whoware.com. It's, again, you find that most of them are just you put in the first name, the last name, and keep your fingers crossed when you hit the search button and and it seems like nine times out of ten you can usually get a hit for a phone number i think you're right there are definitely some good sources nowadays that we didn't have just a few years ago so um, exactly it's it's worth a try great so now you've got the person identified and you have thank goodness a phone number you kind of know where this person's located um, what kind of planning do you do before you pick up the phone and and start dialing? What, how do you plan for your conversation? Well, one thing to do is to consider where this person lives. Maybe they are on the opposite end of the country from where I'm living, and I need to consider, are they in a different time zone than I'm in? 
Um, I don't want to call them in the middle of the night or call too early in the morning. So for me personally, I try not to call before 8 o'clock in the morning. Even 9 o'clock is probably a better choice. And I try not to call anyone after 9 o'clock at night. That's a that's a great point, is <laughs> thinking through kind of where they're located. Anything else that you do to plan ahead? Uh, yes. Also, I try to plan a time when I'm not going to feel too rushed. Also, uh, maybe consider um, an afternoon or an evening when I know my household is going to be fairly quiet. I don't have children in my household now, um, but still sometimes there are other things going on that uh, may be creating a little extra noise. So if I can have maybe even just 30 minutes to an hour set aside where I know things are going to be kind of quiet, that helps me to get my head clear and do what I need to do. I also try to do just a brief review of my notes on the um, family that I'm researching and also to make a list of specific questions that I would like to ask. Another thing that I think is very helpful is to have my genealogy software program open and ready on the computer. So if I need to look up something real quick, I've got that information right there. I've got the computer on or have my written notes right at my fingertips where I can flip through and find things real quickly. That's a great idea. One of the greatest cures for nerves, you know, if I'm going to be speaking to a group or or doing something, even before I record my podcast, it's being prepared. And it sounds like you make that effort and take a little bit of time to get prepared so that that cuts down at least on the butterflies (laughs) before you make the call. It really does. I, I think preparation is a very key part of it. Now, knowing that we're still going to have a bit of nerves, is there anything that you do? Is there a pep talk you give yourself? Um, anything that you tell yourself? Anything that kind of helps put things in perspectives to kind of ease the anxiety of making that call? Well, yes and no. I don't have a particular little speech that I give myself, but I think I do a little bit of, of what you could call self-talk. I just try to have a real positive mindset, just remind myself that I really can do this. It's not impossible. Yes, it is hard, but it is something that can be done. Um, and when those little negative thoughts start to creep in, I just try to really push that aside and say, I can do this. This is important. This very possibly could be the one phone call that I need to have that next breakthrough. So I just really try to keep a real positive attitude about it. And that's a great incentive. You're right. This may be the call. And I know for me, sometimes I just tell myself, you know, all they can do is say no. And that's okay. No, thank you. <laughs> you know, but at least, at least you know you tried. Okay. So we know that uh, there might be something wonderful on the horizon here with this phone call. So we're making the phone call. What's, what's the first thing you do? How do you introduce yourself to this stranger? Well, for me, I feel like that it's really good just to be upfront. Tell them who I am, why I'm calling. I usually say my first and my last name. I tell them the town and the state that I live in. Um, I feel like I, I kind of try to put myself in that other person's shoes and say, if I got this phone call from a total stranger, I would probably feel a little bit more at ease knowing their full name, knowing where they live, 
And then I just go on to say, you know, I'm studying such and such family, doing some family history, and I've come across your name in my research, and I think there's a good chance that we are related. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm already very confident. I know that this person is in my family tree. I know I'm on the right trail, but I try to leave just a little bit of doubt there and just say, I think that we very possibly could be related and just say, I would like to ask you a few questions and talk with you about the family history. That sounds great. Now, how do we take that next step into the family history? You know, you have, you don't really know yet when you make that phone call what their knowledge of the family will be. So what do you, you know, kind of take as the next step? Well, I will try to mention a name. Maybe go ahead and mention a specific name that I'm really trying to hone in on. Or I may say, you know, I have some information that leads me to believe that this family lived in a certain county in Texas in, say, the early 1900s. And I may say, do you know anything about these people? Have you heard of them? Or do you have any information that you could share with me about these people? A lot of times they will just jump right in and start telling me things. Uh, Other times it may come a little bit more slowly. Have there ever been times where it turned out you just had the wrong person? Uh, yes, it, it has. And it, it's a bit embarrassing at, at that moment, but <laughs> I guess the fact that we're not meeting face-to-face makes it a little bit easier. And <laughs> I just try to politely apologize, say, I'm sorry for taking your time. I must have um, gotten the wrong number. And, you know, just apologize and and politely in the call. Now, tell us, has anybody ever given you a hard time? Not really. I've had some calls where it just didn't flow. Um, There were those pauses, those moments where I almost didn't know what to say, and I kind of felt like the other person really wasn't too interested. Uh, So there have been some difficult calls. And that would bring us to the idea of of reluctant relatives. You know, you're a a very hospitable Southern woman, and and I'm sure so gracious on the telephone. I know that you are. Do you have any um, suggestions for those of us if we run into somebody that does seem a bit reluctant to talk at first? Well, I think just letting them know that you are just wanting to talk with them Find little ways to put them at ease that might be talking about a mutual relative. You know, I might mention my grandmother's name and say, you know, start talking about different memories of her that that I have, and that may trigger a memory that they have. And sometimes they may just jump right in and say, yes, I remember that about so-and-so. And it may start them to ask questions of you. They may say, well, did you ever hear such and such about that person? I think that that is one thing. Another idea might be to mention something of particular interest in the family history. For example, you might say, well, I have heard or I have documentation that my great-grandfather Jones was a colonel in the Army in World War I, um, or my great-aunt Bessie was a nurse in the Civil War, or something like that, something in particular that might kind mm-hmm. of stand out and might kind of um, gain their interest in the topic. So I see what you're saying. It, it's funny. Sometimes people will come right off the bat and say, oh, oh, I can't, you know, I don't remember a thing. 
And then you start sharing those stories. And then I'll bet that they, all of a sudden, the memories start coming back a bit, much like doing um, an interview with a family member that you do know. That is true. Uh, recently, my husband and I called an elderly person on his side of the family. We had talked with this person a few years ago, and she did not seem very interested in talking about the family and, and sharing her memories. Um, but we were passing through the city where she lives just a few months ago and decided to just give her a call and see if perhaps we could go by and visit her. Well, we called her, and she was not eager for us to come to her home, but she ended up being very eager to talk over the phone. So it was interesting just how, once we got her started, she talked for a long time. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Carolyn Ender about what we, as the interviewer, should be doing during the phone call, what to do if nobody answers, her must-ask questions, and how to wrap up the call. But making research calls doesn't stop when you hang up. Carolyn has some great strategies for documenting the call and doing the necessary database entry that needs to happen, as well as some really creative follow-up suggestions. At the end of next week's episode, you will be fully equipped to place calls to anyone, known to you or not, that may be able to help you make progress with your research. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.